Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. It is a lengthy passage which needs to be considered in its full form. So I will be reading the entire chapter of Acts verse, chapter 7, follow along, and then after reading it, Pastor Brett will come and exhort it, exposit it for us. Let me read Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Stephen's defense. Now the high priest had said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Listen to me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go from your country and your relatives and come to the land which I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot of ground. And yet, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not theirs, and they would enslave and mistreat them for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they are enslaved, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac fathered Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him. And rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and his entire household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was revealed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited his father, Jacob, and all of his relatives to come to him, 75 people and all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he and our fathers died there. And they were brought back from there to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise which God had assured to Abraham was approaching, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until another king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It was he who shrewdly took advantage of our nation and mistreated our fathers in order that they would abandon their infants in the Nile so they would not survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful to God. He was nurtured for three months in his father's home. And after he had been put aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was proficient in speaking and action. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his countrymen, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended and took vengeance for the oppressed man by fatally striking the Egyptian. And he thought that his brothers understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. 
but they did not understand. And on that following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting each other. He tried to reconcile them to peace by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you injuring each other? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became a stranger in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he was astonished at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and did not dare to look closely. But the Lord said to him, remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are stand is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned saying, who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from a countryman. This is the one who is in the assembly in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him at length on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. On the contrary, they rejected him and turned back to Egypt in their hearts, saying to Aaron, Make us a God who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to serve the heavenly lights, as is written in the books of the prophets. You did not offer me victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, did you, house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Ramphah, the images which you made to worship. I also will deport you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had their tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern which he had seen. Our fathers in turn received it, And they also brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations that God drove out from our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest? Was it not my hand that made all these things? You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. And you have now become betrayers and murderers of him. 
You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you do not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were infuriated. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one wind. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Thank you, Pastor Jory. Now, if you're anything like me, I probably would have acquitted Stephen out of just pure boredom at his sermon. Sometimes these winding history lessons are like, what in the world does this have to do with our heart? Why, why is this being recorded? One of the reasons we can think that way is because we're not immersed in the culture of these 71 men who are deciding whether or not they are going to crush Stephen with rocks in a pit. But once we understand their culture, we'll see that this message is as applicable to our hearts today as it was for them then. So with that being said, let's ask for the Holy Spirit to be our primary teacher, that we would not be stiff-necked or hard of hearing, that our hearts would be fertile ground to receive his word. And then we'll see that this message can be preached and taught to anyone and everyone who has breath in their lungs. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We need your help. We begin by confessing that you are God and we are not. Your Son is the Deliverer. Our government is not. Our trust is in you not in the work of our hands. Father, I am a sinner and I do not preach here or teach here this morning because I have arrived or that I am worthy, but because these words are from You. I pray that we would see and hear what You have given here. May the, as I pray so often, Lord, may the meaning of the text be our sermon. Father, we celebrate the birth of your Son. And we see here that you sent your Son, even knowing full well he would be rejected. Father, bless your word. If you bless anything in this church, bless your word. Bless your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And if you're awake this morning, say Merry Christmas. All right. Last time we were together, we looked at Stephen the man. Today, we're going to look at Stephen's the message, and the next week, Stephen the martyr. All right. Now, as you can see, Stephen's message is one of the longest messages ever recorded in the Word of God, but especially within the entire New Testament. It seems like, and if you could agree with this, I would appreciate it by saying amen, It would seem like a winding, unconnected history lesson that if read in its entirety can bring about a large yawn in our lives. Amen? I mean, that's just some truth there. Unless you're more spiritual. 
all right? But it is a history lesson from a a culture 2,000 years ago. And a single question rises from this long, winding, disconnected history lesson. What does this have to do with my heart? And how in the world am I going to walk out of here today saying, now I know how to live my life? So let's start out by putting the text on the screen, okay? Acts chapter 7. What I want you to do is I want you to commit this to memory, all right? How many here can see spelling mistakes and grammar errors? Now, you look at this text, and I can barely read it, all right? When we look at this text, we can feel multiple things happening at the same time. And I can think of three. Number one, this is a very long passage. Number two, what does this have to do with me? And then number three, which is on the minds of all of you, Giovanni, my man, good to see you. How's how's Ferris State going? All A's? Okay. So Giovanni's going to need this the most, all right? No, it's good to see you, brother. And if you're honest, the third one you're thinking, and let's be honest, if pastor can speak for an hour on one verse, what in the world will today be like? And have I sufficiently hydrated myself for this journey? And the answer is no, you have not. But if you've been thinking about starting a fast, I'm going to help you kickstart it this morning, all right? No, no, no. My friends, the best way to go through this passage is to once again adjust our hermeneutical wings, fly high over the text, and simply identify mountaintops and valleys and streams in this landscape and see how the message fills our hearts and lives today. In fact, if you look very hard at that text, I know you can't make it all out, but if you look at it really hard, you'll see the first landmark is a stream that actually flows in to this text from chapter 6. This stream that we will look at from chapter 6 will cut the path forward through all 53 verses in chapter 7. It's kind of like the Colorado River going through the Grand Canyon. Just follow the river and we will get through this long winding landscape. And the stream is this. It is the charge against Stephen. It's the charge against Stephen. It's actually found in chapter 6, and it is this. We have heard this man speak against Moses, God, and the temple. You'll find those three charges in 11, 13, and 15 of chapter 6, which begins to bring up why we got this history lesson. We got Moses and the Torah. We got God. He kind of goes a little ways back, right? And we have the temple. And so this is the stream we have to follow, the accusation against Stephen. And what Stephen will do is simply this. He will say, not only am I with Moses, not only am I with God, not only am I with the temple, but you, Sanhedrin, are the ones who stand against all three. He will flip the script in 53 verses. My friends, I want you to listen to the first martyr of the church moments before he will die by being struck in the head with rocks. I want you to see him speak with with love as he starts out with my brothers, our fathers, and he relates to them. He starts out with love and clarity and boldness and truth that is so transcendent and so needed that if we can pay attention for about 35 minutes, it'll have a potent message for our hearts today. Now, I have 
purposely tried to shave 25% off the time of my messages today. And I chose 53 verses to do that with. That's right, it's going to be six hours, but it's not. It's going to be five. As we look at this text, all right? We see two peaks immediately, two mountains. Those peaks are Joseph and Moses. Joseph and Moses. This seems like kind of random if you think about it. I mean, we understand Moses. He is speaking against Moses. But where in the world did did the subject of Joseph come from? Let us remember that Stephen is being charged of speaking against Moses. So Stephen adds even additional proof above and beyond what he's about to say. Have you ever had someone say the words, oh yeah? Okay, first of all, let me start here. How many here have ever been in an argument? Anyone at all? How many here are married? Anyone at all? Anyone had a relationship with another breathing human being? And you're, you're exchanging... Constructive criticism with one another, and they say the words, oh yeah, give me one example. And you can't think of one. Anyone been there? I mean, it's clear. They have a history of it, and they want one example, and you can't. Well, Stephen comes up with many, many, many examples. He says this, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan. In a great affliction with it, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And we're just going to pull this out of the text. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob and his father and all of his relatives and brothers to come with him. Now what in the world does this have to do with the charge? Here's what I need you to see. I love how he doesn't say the brothers of Joseph. He says the patriarchs because that's where we get the tribes, the twelve. Became jealous of Joseph. You remember when we went through the book of First and Second Samuel with one another? How David was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. How we are not David. Christ is David delivering us from a foe we can't defeat. And we are not David. We are Israel off to the side. We are sinners who have no hope for deliverance. And we needed someone to come from Bethlehem to deliver us from a foe we couldn't defeat on our own. It's a foreshadow of things to come. Remember when we ended the book of Luke and Jesus sat down with the disciples and, and, and he taught them the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament point to. In fact, these are the words of Jesus here. All right? He said this, then beginning with, what word is it? Be, Jesus said, beginning with who? Talk to me. Moses. Who are the Sanhedrin accusing? Moses. You're speaking against Moses. Jesus, as he sat down with the disciples after he rose from the dead, but before he ascended, unpacked Moses and all of the prophets. That's all of the Old Testament. He unpacked Moses and the prophets. He explained the things concerning himself found in all of the Old Testament. All of it points to Christ. And we say, okay, but what does this have to do with Joseph? Joseph is baked into those teachings. What Stephen is doing here is he's showing a pattern. He is showing a pattern to the Sanhedrin who just rejected Jesus Christ and crucified him and is now getting ready to reject Stephen by stoning him. Which, by the way, all the imagery of Stephen, when Jesus was on the cross and he was being murdered by his enemies, he said, forgive them, they know not what they what? 
do. When Stephen is being stoned, he says, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's a beautiful pattern here. A pattern of Israel's leadership towards all God sends to his nation, his people. The overarching life of Joseph points forward to the overarching life of Jesus. Look at the pattern here. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. The Sanhedrin was jealous of Jesus. The brothers of Joseph rejected Joseph, sold him. The Sanhedrin rejected and got rid of Jesus. Joseph ended up saving the lives of his family from starving to death in a famine. Jesus will save their lives spiritually from the penalty of sin and death. He is the David against sin and death. You see, Joseph's story in the Old Testament isn't some VeggieTales story of how to do the right thing in a difficult situation. Joseph's life is not about Potiphar's wife. Now, that's a a wonderful peripheral moral uh, 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 piece of fruit we can pick from it, but that's not why it's there. It is a foreshadow of who Jesus is and that they were both sent to deliver their brothers from death and were ultimately rejected. Now, Joseph is a bright light shining forward to the person of Jesus Christ. David is a bright light shining forward to Jesus Christ. The prophets are a bright light shining forward to Jesus Christ. And this happened over and over and over and over again. It happened to every person God ever sent to Israel. All of the narrative of the Old Testament affirms who Jesus is. Even even that of the Sanhedrin's greatest hero, Moses. You did it to Moses too. It's not just that you did it to Isaiah. It's not that you just did it to, 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 who did we just do? Joseph. It's not that you did it to the uh, uh, Amos and all the prophets. You did it to Moses, the, the author of the very Torah you worship. Now, hang on. I'm thirsty. And Moses, they, what's it say? They, they what? Rejected. See the pattern? See, when we begin to understand, if we can, if we can slip out of the shoes of a, a 2000 and almost 22 Americanized, westernized, American culture Christian, if we can pull ourselves out of that and just carry our consciousness into a first century Jew who is on the Sanhedrin, who is trying to protect their power, we begin to see what's going on here. Who made you, they disowned Moses saying, who made you ruler and judge? Can you see the Pharisees saying this to Jesus? Is the one whom God sent to be both ruler and deliverer. What I want you to see here is again, the pattern of Joseph's life is the same as the pattern of Moses' life. Which is the same as the pattern of Isaiah's life. I just, just fill in the blank in the Old Testament. Jonah, he was received well, was he not? Who preached the gospel? And that they are a pattern of Jesus' coming life. And that they both point to the pattern of Jesus' life. Moses was rejected by those he came to deliver. So was Jesus. You find that in John chapter 10, verse 11. Moses redeemed his people out of slavery from Egypt. Jesus will redeem his people out of slavery from sin. 
When you add these things up, we see this very clearly. Israel's leadership had rejected every person whom God had sent to deliver them in the past. And Stephen is saying, you have just done the same thing now, ultimately, with Jesus Christ. It is not I who stand opposed to Moses. It is consistently you who oppose all those God sends to deliver us. It is you who oppose God. It is you who oppose Moses. It is you who oppose Jesus. It is you who are the guilty ones. Can you see the Sanhedrin? Can you see Stephen influencing enemies and making friends here? You're wrong. I am not. I stand with God. I stand with Moses. I stand with Joseph. I stand with our patriarchs. Now we might be tempted to say, well, aren't we reading a little into these stories of these men? And the answer here is is a resounding no. The Old Testament is not a collection of cute moral stories. Both Joseph and Moses' overarching pattern of life is a picture of what is to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything points to Jesus. In fact, Moses made this crystal clear within the very passage that Stephen is quoting. It was Moses who said to the sons of Israel, who is Stephen talking to right now? The sons of Israel. God will raise up to you. This is Moses speaking, Stephen quoting, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own brethren. Like Joseph, like Moses, like Isaiah, like, like it all, all right? Now grab this. Moses said, another prophet like me who will be rejected and has been called to deliver you will rise up and that prophet like me is Jesus. You oppose Moses, not me. And with that, the Sanhedrin is theologically and intellectually Stripped naked of their charge of Stephen, saying he's opposing God and Moses. And Stephen does it, here it is, with their own scriptures, with their own prophets, with their own patriarchs, with their own theology. He strips them down. Now let me pause for a moment for some application here. Stephen, in many ways, is in an absolutely helpless situation. There is no room in these men's hearts to change their minds. Yet look at God work. He's about to be stoned. John Calvin gives us some wonderful encouragement in the midst of hopelessness. Have you ever felt like you are in the midst of a hopeless circumstance? John Calvin says this, The time is most fit for God to work when there is no hope to be found in our human hand. God's power is most clearly seen when all our ability is gone. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, God's strength is made perfect when we have none. It is all Him. If you are in a hopeless situation this morning, see it for what it is worth in the eyes of God. It is God's most powerful, productive, invisible time in our lives. Let Him build something beautiful out of the rubble. Our rubble is the material of God for creating amazing things. Now, let us look at another mountaintop. We had Moses, we had Joseph. We flew over those babies. 
Now there's another one, and it's called the temple. First, it's undeniable. They are just like their forefathers, doing the same thing, standing against God's anointed. We went over that. You can almost hear one of them whisper. Have you ever had someone, how many here have ever experienced passive aggressiveness in West Michigan? Anyone at all? Have you, Giovanni? What about up in Fair, Fair State? Are they passive aggressive up there? A little bit? All right. I'm going to pick on you all day, okay? This is what happens when you come twice a year, all right? I'm joking. <laughs> Love you, brother. You can almost hear one of the Sanhedrin whisper loud enough for everyone to hear. How can he say this? We have the temple. Stephen picks that up. How can you say we are against God and Moses and Joseph and the patriarchs? We have the temple. We're in charge of the temple. And the temple is the very presence of God. And if the presence of God is present in your life, you are in the right. God is with us. You see, at this moment, at least for, at least in their catechism of ideas, Judaism was the temple. Judaism, the temple, was the beginning and the end of Judaism. As it, as it represented the very presence of the Most High God, their point would sound a bit like this if we contemporized it. It would sound like this. God is surely on our side. We have the temple. The temple is the presence of God. The presence of God is His approval. There had been a theological drifting here for the Sanhedrin. Stephen will unpack from their own scriptures and their own forefathers and their own history how they are wrong. Look at them destroy all of their sacred cows about God's presence from their own sacred text, the Old Testament. It is not about a sacred place, Stephen will argue. It is about a sacred person. Have we made things sacred in our life? while neglecting to make the person of Jesus Christ sacred? Are there things we won't sacrifice because they're so precious? But Jesus is on the chopping block. Stephen shows them that God's presence is not contained in any building. He says this, The God of glory appeared to to Father Abraham in Mesopotamia. That is a pagan land. The presence of God is found in pagan land. Then he says, he appeared to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. This is Gentile territory. You have the presence of God at Mount Sinai as they're building a golden calf in the middle of the wilderness. How can God's presence be there if it's combined to a building? How could it be in Mesopotamia? He says this, in the flame of a burning bush. There is nothing sacred about that bush. It is, it is God who made that bush sacred because of His presence. Our fathers had the tabernacle wandering around as a tent in the, in the wilderness. His, here, grab this. The presence of God moved all around. And a pillar of fire at night, a cloud during the day. They, made, they, they unpacked it, they built it, they moved it around for 40 years because Moses was like the typical man. He would not ask for directions. Or it was God's will that they wandered. One of the two. 
Now, I could keep going, but you get the message. You see, Stephen was devoted to worshiping a sacred person. The Sanhedrin had drifted to be devoted of worshiping a sacred place. God is not bound by a sacred place, but rather wherever God is, is sacred. Because he is holy. It's why he told Moses in a pagan land, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy? Because God is there. This is huge. Because Paul is watching and listening to all this. I need you to grab this. Paul is listening and his teeth are grinding and he's getting really ticked at Stephen. In fact, in just a few other verses, he's literally going to hold the coats of the people who stoned the man to death. But he's listening There sits Saul, who will soon be called Paul, listening to Stephen's message. And later, Saul, Paul, will teach us believers in 1 Corinthians years later. He says, what? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? All those words coming from the mouth of of a Jew would just be astounding. If you are a child of God, your body is sacred. Because his presence resides there. That that ought to cause us to rejoice in the love of God and tremble at the thought of loving sin. And then Stephen gives a final blow from another prophet sent by God who they rejected. Pattern. He quotes Isaiah. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool and of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for, for, for my repose? Was it not my hands that made everything you built with? Now you can see their jaw lock. How dare you? All that background and historical context and all of a sudden this winding disjointed history lesson if viewed through the lens of a first century Jew just begins to explode in front of our own hearts 2,000 years later because God's word never fails to touch our hearts now grab this the transitory nature of the tabernacle as it moves around in pagan land. Yet God's presence is still there. It was there in Mesopotamia. It was there on Mount Sinai. It was there in the burning bush. It is present in all those who believe in Him. Oh, hear this, my friends. Stephen is not guilty of blaspheming the presence of God in the temple. He speaks against God. He speaks against Moses. He speaks against the temple. It is not Stephen who speaks against the presence of God. It is the Sanhedrin who is guilty of blasphemy for confining the presence of God to a building. The temple is a symbol of the presence of God. It is not the prison of it. Oh. Now I need you to grab this. Stephen is not criticizing the temple. Stephen is not criticizing the temple, but rather how they have view, began to view the temple. Which is going to bring us to a first question of application here that every one of us has stains on our hands with. And here is the question. 
Have we ever taken the promises of God? The temple is a promise of God. The temple is a gift of God. Have we ever taken a promise and gift of God and made it to an idol equal to or of greater value than God himself? Have we ever taken a promise or a gift and made it more precious than the one who gave it to us? And the answer for all of us is what class? Yes. We are living right now in a season where the trappings around the birth of Christ are more important than the birth of Christ. Are you following me on this? I, I was having a conversation with a pastor uh, this weekend. He said, well, what are you going to do for Christmas next year? It's on a Sunday. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to get up and I'm going to teach God's word. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I am paid to do. And it's important to me, all right? I may have got those confused. I said, well, he goes, what are you going to do? I said, well, we're going to have church. I mean, it's the birth of, well, please know, this is the season we have set aside to celebrate the birth of Christ. And they said, oh, we're canceling all services. I said, what are you canceling all services for? He said, well, we want everyone to have their, their family time and their traditions. We don't want to get in the way of that. We can elevate the culture around Christianity to more precious than the Christ of Christianity. We've done it with topics like eternal security. Oh, what a gift, what a promise. But have we ever taken that promise and that precious gift of eternal security and raised it higher than Christ himself? Have we ever looked at eternal security as a means to assure us of our salvation rather than a love for Christ? So now we have a complete reversal. Stephen says, I don't oppose Moses. You do. I don't oppose God. You do. I do not blaspheme his presence. You do. By limiting a place made out of human hands. Oh, don't let this slip, my friends. For we are almost done with our flight. And we are going to land in a field of ripe application for our lives. So let's let the smoke clear just a little bit. Stephen says, you are just like your forefathers. You reject the one God sends for deliverance. You did it to Joseph. You did it to Isaiah. You did it to Moses. You did it to Jesus. You did it to every prophet. In fact, just so you don't think I'm speaking in hyperbole here, he flat out says in verse 52, which one of the prophets did you not reject? This is what the heart of man does. And now you did it to Jesus. And you blaspheme God by limiting him in his presence to this place. You violate the very nature of God with your own theology. Look at the eyes of the Sanhedrin here. Can you feel the tension in the room? Verse 54 gives us a hint it says their jaws are locked. Another translation says they were gnashing their teeth. Finish this statement. Well, give me a number. How much of communication is nonverbal? Give me a percentage. How much? 90%. Who said 33? No. 90% of communication is nonverbal. And Stephen is getting this. 
utter contempt. Now I want you to take all of that background study, roll it up, and dump it into Stephen's final words. We're almost done with 53 verses. Merry Christmas. You men are stiff-necked, and you are uncircumcised in the heart. He might as well just punch him in the throat. You are always resisting, pattern, the presence of God, just as your fathers did it with everyone. Which one of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have done it. And you who receive the law, who you say, I'm speaking against, who was given by angels, I elevate the value and the, and, the, and the sacredness of the law. You receive the sacred law from outside of human hands, messengers from God, and you break it. These are almost exactly the words of Moses when he came down Mount Sinai when he found Israel making the golden calf in Exodus chapter 33. Stephen, oh, is not the Holy Spirit giving him the words to say when he is opposed by the, the authorities of this world? Stephen uses the words of Moses to damn them. The words uncircumcised in hearts and in ears, meaning what you claim on the outside, you're circumcised on the outside, but your heart and your ears aren't. What you say you have on the outside is nowhere found on the inside. Oh, let the application just drench us. Do we claim something on the outside that is not on the inside? You are just as far from God as uncircumcised pagan Gentiles worshiping at the altar of Moloch and Ramphah. Verse 43. I want you to grab this. We're almost done. They're not going to know what to do in children's ministries, but we're almost done. Religious people get angry when their idols are touched. Religious people get angry when their idols are touched, especially when those idols start out from biblical gifts from God. Can you hear them grinding their teeth? Do you see the application begin to rise here like the smoke on a forest fire that we've just flown over? Its applications can fill this room, and by God's grace, it can fill our hearts. And the question is this, what is it? Grab this, we'll see it and hear it. Listen to Stephen's words to the Sanhedrin and tell me we can't hear these, these words as equally applicable in the room today with us. Stephen said, you are in a blessed land. You have God's Word in your hand and you're sitting in a beautiful temple believing that because you have these things, the presence of God is in your life. Here it is. You confuse your great spiritual privileges with belonging to God. Do we confuse spiritual privileges? with belonging to God.
Oh, my friends, we are not Israel. God is not done with Israel. We have not replaced them. But we share the same dangerous heart. Have we not taken these spiritual privileges and confused them with belonging to God? A culture that alters their Christianity into what we do and what we know rather than who we love. Oh, my, my beloved church, may our necks not be stiff. May our hearts not be uncircumcised. And may we see that the abundance of our spiritual privileges does not assure spiritual deliverance. But the question we begin with sits in front of us as much as it did when we began. What does this long, winding, seemingly disjointed history lesson have to do with our hearts today? Watch this pop. Like Israel then, we can take the scriptures and be preoccupied with them. We can carry our scriptures to church, mark them with our pens, turn the pages and memorize its context, yet fail to write it on our hearts. We don't delight in it. Like Israel, they thought that going three times to the temple and pray would make them right with God. Oh, do we think coming to church three times on Sunday makes us right with God? Like Israel, Surrounded by spiritual privilege, we see no need for deliverance. My friends, hear this today. Hear this today. Let it explode in our hearts today. For if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and so am I. Your salvation is not found in the work of your hands. This building has nothing to do with the presence of God in your life, but rather repenting of your sins and receiving Jesus Christ, being born again unto a whole new way of life. The old life passing away in this new birth is not seen by the privileges we are surrounded by, but by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our minds my friends the gospel is the power of God to transform or it is nothing at all the gospel is not dormant it's not a prayer we pray and then nothing happens might be able to see a few of the Sanhedrin starting to pop their coats. They got some throwing to do. Friends, the gospel is the power of God or it is nothing at all. If it's not consuming our lives, you don't have it. Like a mustard seed. If it'll infiltrate every Desire of your heart. Can you take or leave your walk with Christ? We can be in danger of doing the same things as the Sanhedrin if we're not careful. To elevate our view of biblical blessing and privilege to the point 
They give us false assurance that we belong to God when we do not. You want to know how you belong to God? Your hunger for Him will never stop growing. Now, I'm not saying that we don't fail. But in our failure, we run back to God. You cannot have the presence of God in your life without a heart that's saying, I must have Jesus. I must glorify Him. And with that, our flight over this long textual landscape has come to an end. This winding history lesson is as much needed today as it was then. And let me close with two sentences. It is here. Remember Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. The church is about to leave Jerusalem and they're about to go to Judea. We're going to see it spread here. It is here that Judaism and Christianity will begin to grow apart. Up until this point, they're, they're cross-pollinating. They go to temple together. They're in the temple. They're, they're, they're joining each other in synagogue. But that comes to an end here. Christianity and Judaism will begin to grow apart. Their rejection and the persecution that they get from Israel made it necessary, here it is, for a new community to go on its way. And that's the church. That's you. That's me. That's us. The church is about to leave Jerusalem. And eventually, given enough time, It'll be planted in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But that's next week. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. We pray that your word and the history that you give us would not be repeated in our hearts. May you alone be the object of our worship and our affection. Not the gifts that come from your hand, but you. Father, I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. I love you guys. Merry Christmas. You are dismissed.